This message is brought to you by Mill City Church in Lowell, Massachusetts. For more information, please visit millcitychurch.net. Well, if you're excited about studying God's Word together, turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. The Old Testament book of Exodus. We're going all the way back towards the beginning of the Scriptures. If you're watching via live stream today, we would encourage you to download a listening guide there in the description of today's video. We would love for you to follow along with us in your notes as we make our way through the text this morning. Well, this morning we begin a 15-week study of this 40-chapter gem written by our hero of the faith, Moses. And that term Exodus, the title of the book, It means going out or a departing from, and the name of the book really encapsulates what a large portion of the book contains. God's people would go out from or depart from their slavery in Egypt, but it wouldn't be their own doing. No, instead it would be God's doing on their behalf. And therefore, Exodus is really a masterpiece book of history recounting God's miraculous works among his people, Israel. Now, a large portion of the book of Exodus takes place in ancient Egypt. It's not exactly somewhere we just visit on a whim, right? And perhaps the best that we can do is maybe we remember a picture of the Great Pyramids from our history book, or maybe we remember the Brendan Fraser flick, The Mummy, where that movie took place. Or if you're a child of the 80s, maybe you remember humming along with that girl band's hit, Walk Like an Egyptian, right? You remember that? That might be the most familiarity we have with the nation of Egypt, But as far removed from ancient Egypt as we might be, I don't want you to think for a moment today that you cannot relate to this ancient text this morning. Even though we're we're studying events that took place 3,500 years ago, I want you to see that this book is the account, the actual historical account of God's real people with real circumstances, real threats, and real need, and that God actually intervened on their behalf and gave them real deliverance from their opposition. And so before we dive into the text this morning, let's consider why we study this ancient book of the Bible thousands of years later. Why we study Exodus. Well, one, we want to know God better. We want to know God better. The book of Exodus is basically broken down into two big halves. The first half recounts God's deliverance of uh, Israel from their Egyptian slavery. The second half of the book of Exodus recounts God's interactions with his people and leading them into his presence and understanding his presence and being with them. And so in that light, what Exodus is showing us is that God draws his people out in order to draw his people in. According to theologian W. Ross Blackburn, God's motivation in Exodus is to move Israel and the nations from ignorance to knowing him. 
So ultimately, through God's actions in Exodus, we're reminded that God's ultimate mission on earth is to know him as he truly is. And so as you and I study God's actions on behalf of his people in Exodus, may we also, we too, may we move from ignorance to knowledge. May we ultimately know God better too. Secondly, we study Exodus because we want to understand the gospel better. Now I've subtitled this sermon series, The Gospel According to Moses. Because the entire act of Exodus is a micro-narrative of the meta-narrative of God's redemption that ultimately comes through Jesus Christ. And so as we make our way through the text in the coming weeks, I want you to see the slavery of God's people, the appointment of a divine, of a deliverer in Moses, I want you to see the blood sacrifice of the Passover, the rescue at the Red Sea, God's presence with his people after Sinai, all of these events and more I want you to see as serving as foreshadows of Jesus' work for us through his life, death, and resurrection. And then consequently, as we read and study, may we understand the gospel better. Thirdly, we read and study Exodus because we want to advance the mission better. Now, it might surprise us as New Testament Christians, but mission doesn't begin with the Great Commission in Matthew 28. God's mission actually runs throughout the Old Testament. And if Blackburn is correct, which I think he is, when he says that God's ultimate mission is to make himself known among his people and among the nations, then Exodus is going to help us understand that mission better. And so therefore, I pray through reading and studying Exodus, we will want to advance that mission even better. And lastly, Why do we study Exodus? We want to apply the scriptures better. We want to apply the scriptures better. Now, the Apostle Paul teaches us in 2 Timothy 3 that all scripture is beneficial for us. And that is true. But just because we read all scripture as equally true for us, that does not mean that all scripture is equally applicable to us. In other words, we do not read an Old Testament historical narrative like Exodus in the exact same way that we might apply a New Testament epistle like Ephesians or Philippians. It's a different genre of literature. And so as we make our way through the text, I hope to demonstrate to you how to better apply the scriptures to our walks with God today. So, We study the book of Exodus for many reasons, but I want you to at least start with these four because ultimately their story is our story too. So with those foundations laid, 
Let's dive into this morning's text. We're actually going to make our way through chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus this morning. And I promise you that we won't be here until game time tonight. Okay, so let's start by reading verses 1 through 7 of chapter 1. We're going to start with verse 1 of chapter 1 because that's where it's usually good to start reading books. All right, here we go. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now this morning, we we might not be able to directly apply to our contemporary lives everything that we read in this morning's text, but we can identify with several realities. And so that's what I want to point your attention towards this morning. I I want to show you five ways that God's people today identify with God's people of the past, right? Here's the first, and we just read it. We have to see our faith in light of something bigger than ourselves. We have to see our faith in light of something bigger than ourselves. Now, our English translations don't show it, but in the original Hebrew, the first word of verse one is the word And Now, I know that our English teachers taught us not to start a sentence with the word and, but that's what we've got here. And so we might be bad. So what might be bad English grammar actually turns out to be pretty good theology this morning. Here's why. The book of Exodus begins by quoting to a T Genesis chapter 46, verse 8. But to fully appreciate what's going on here in recounting these sons of Jacob and talking about Joseph, we have to actually go back to Genesis chapter 12. Because at the beginning of Genesis 12, God called a man named Abram, who would later be called Abraham. And he said this to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And he goes on to say, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, this was God's covenant with Abraham and his descendants. God reaffirmed, repeated this covenant with Abraham multiple times, repeated it to his son Isaac and then his grandson Jacob. And Jacob went on to have 12 sons of his own. One of those sons, Joseph, was sold into slavery by his brothers. And then through a crazy set of events, God sovereignly positioned Joseph into an influential leadership role in Egypt during a serious famine. And then through that famine, God would would intervene and, and unite Joseph with his family in Egypt. Now, fast forward 400 years later, 
you pick up in Exodus chapter 1. And over the last several centuries, verse 7 tells us that what God promised Abraham had begun to come to pass. God multiplied them. He increased them greatly and he formed them into a great nation, a nation called Israel. That's why it's theologically significant that Exodus begins with the word and. Because Exodus is a continuation of Genesis. Their story is the next chapter in God's grand story of his people on earth. The people here in Exodus, their lives were not in a vacuum. Their faith wasn't a new faith. They were a part of something so much bigger than themselves. Now, fast forward thousands of years later. Likewise, our faith is not in a vacuum. I think that oftentimes we struggle to realize this reality. Perhaps it's our human nature, but oftentimes we wrongly believe that somehow we are the first Christians to ever live on the face of the earth, that, that we're the only people who have ever experienced what we experience, that no one else has ever dealt with what we deal with today, or that our circumstances or our experiences at this particular juncture of human history in this particular country are the definition and the standard of Christian experience but we are wrong when we think that our story is simply the next chapter of God's grand narrative he is writing throughout church history our faith is their faith our story is their story in fact the apostle Paul tells us in Galatians 3 7 know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. This is why when we are little kids, we sing Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. I am one of them and so are you. So let's just praise the Lord. Right arm left. Okay, I'll stop there. So if, you've be- if you have been born again through faith in Jesus Christ, then you too are a spiritual descendant of Abraham. Their story is your story because your faith is a part of something so much bigger than yourself. Second, second way that we identify with God's people of old, we have to recognize that God multiplies his people even in the midst of terrible circumstances. I'm not going to read the the rest of chapter 1 for the sake of time, But verse 7 told us that the Israelites increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So strong that Egypt was literally filled with them. And beginning in verse 8, the text tells us that the evil king of Egypt took notice of Israel's growth and took notice of Israel's strength. And so the evil king of Egypt, threatened by God's growing people, took action. And I want you to see from the text how the text describes the Israelites' circumstances. In verse 11, 
we learn that the Egyptians set taskmasters over the Israelites to afflict them with heavy burdens. In verse 11, the Egyptians ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. And in verse 14, they made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. But oppressive slavery was not the only terrible affliction the Israelites experienced from the Egyptian tyranny. If you read on in chapter 1, the Egyptians also sought to thwart Israelite propagation through acts of infanticide. Look again with me in chapter 1 in verse 15. The king told the Hebrew midwives, when, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it's a son, you shall kill him. But if it's a daughter, she shall live. But we also learn from the text that the midwives refused to do so. And so the Egyptian Pharaoh went a cruel step further, commanding all the Egyptians in verse 22, every son that is born to the Hebrews, you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Here's what we learn. The Israelites' circumstances, make no mistake about it, their circumstances were terrible. But as intensely as the Egyptians tried to thwart the advancement of God's people, so faithfully did God work to multiply His people. Even in the middle of these terrible circumstances, look with me at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Friend, we have to recognize that God multiplies his people even in the midst of terrible circumstances. And what was true in ancient Egypt has proved true throughout church history, and it's even the reality today. I want you to hear this reality this morning. God has always had a people. You might want to write that down. God has always had a people and no matter how intense the circumstances may be, no matter how hard it is to practice the faith, no matter how non-Christian the government may be, God has always had a people and he will always multiply his people. Even in the midst of terrible circumstances. I think about the reality in the world today. I think about the places where the church of Jesus Christ is growing most rapidly. I want you to think about this for a moment this morning. If I were to ask you, where do you think the church of Jesus Christ is growing at the fastest rate in the world today? Or if I asked you, where do you think it's growing at the slowest rate in the world today? What might your answers be? Would it surprise you 
that in large measure, the church of Jesus Christ is growing most rapidly today in countries where the government is unfavorable towards Christianity at best and even oppressive towards Christians at worst. And by comparison, it is growing much more slowly in Western countries like the United States, where on the surface level, those places seem much more favorable to Christianity, or at least neutral to Christianity. Brothers and sisters, today, the church of Jesus Christ is growing 250 times faster in Iran than in the United States of America. And it's growing 200 times more quickly in Afghanistan than it is in our country. And in the Hindu country of Nepal, it's growing 60 times faster than in our country. And in each of these countries, Christians comprise a small slice of the population And in none of these countries is it easy to be a Christian. But yet that's where the church is growing most rapidly in the world today. And when you look at any list of countries where Christianity is growing quickest and where it's growing slowest, the United States and other Western countries are near the bottom of growth. And this morning, I don't want you to get me wrong. I thank God beyond description to live in a country like the United States. And I don't want to imply that somehow American Christians are just horrible and Iranian Christians should be canonized. I'm not suggesting that. But is it possible that we as Christians in this country that the freedoms that we prize and the freedoms that we boast about and the freedoms that we fight for in America, religiously speaking, might those same freedoms do more to stifle the growth of the church than to advance the growth of the church? Because the places where the church is growing most rapidly today would never understand the freedoms we boast. But yet God is multiplying them greatly anyway. Here's the takeaway from this. As a follower of Jesus Christ, we should never be dependent upon freedom, peace, safety, or security, or laws in our favor for Christian growth. We trust God for the increase. Because God will multiply his people in both times of ease and in even times of terrible circumstances. God has always had a people. Thirdly, here's a third way that we identify with God's people from of old. We have to remember that God raised up a deliverer for us at the appointed time. Now continue following along with me as I begin reading chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Remember, this is in the context of the infanticide. 
And when she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch. She put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now there are so many things that could be said in response to really the miraculous birth and preservation of baby Moses here. But for the sake of time, allow me to simply sum it up this way. God brought forth Moses in a sovereign way that only he could do. You see, throughout redemptive history, God has a way. He he simply goes out of his way to do miraculous, weird, crazy things with babies, right? I mean, if if you read the Bible for any length of time and just make your way through just parts of it, you will find that God just does crazy things with babies throughout redemptive history. And he did so with Moses as well. Moses will be the deliverer for God's enslaved people. He just doesn't know it yet. But what Moses points us towards is the one who would be called the greater Moses. God's only son himself, Jesus Christ, who was also born under miraculous circumstances, who as a baby boy also faced the murderous threat of an insecure, tyrannical ruler. Moses' parents birthed him In Egypt, after Jesus' birth, his parents took him and fled into Egypt. You see, at God's appointed time throughout redemptive history, he always raises up a deliverer for his people. And here at the genesis of the nation of Israel, in the midst of oppressive slavery, in in the face of life and death circumstances, he sent Moses Of course, as we're going to see in a moment, Moses was not the ultimate deliverer. Moses was actually a very imperfect deliverer. But he pointed towards the one who would be. See, Moses continues to march in the Old Testament parade of leaders who ultimately point us towards the ultimate deliverer of God's people the perfect deliverer of God's people, his son, Jesus Christ, who as Galatians 4, verses 4 through 5, says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So here's what I want you to see. As we make our way through the book of Exodus, as we learn how God used Moses 
a very imperfect deliverer, to intercede on behalf of his people, to rescue his people from slavery. What I want you to do is I want you to be looking to Jesus, who has accomplished completely and perfectly what Moses accomplished incompletely and imperfectly. And so we identify with God's people in the past in that we remember that God raised up a deliverer for us at the appointed time, and his name is Jesus. A fourth way that we identify today with God's people from yesterday, we have to identify ourselves as exiles even in our own homeland. Now, the rest of chapter 2 tells us a lot about Moses' biography and maturation. Verse 11 of chapter 2, it's believed that Moses was 40 years old or so around uh, that time. And when he grew up, he witnessed an Egyptian beating one of his Hebrew brethren. And so impetuously, Moses went and killed the Egyptian and then buried him out of sight to try to cover it up. And then later, Moses attempted to settle a dispute between two other Hebrew men. And one of those responded in verse 14, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Pharaoh heard about the murder and basically placed a bounty on Moses' head. So Moses seemingly has no place to call home right now. Remember, Moses was a Hebrew man who was raised in the Egyptian royal family. And now his Hebrew brethren are suspicious of him and his adopted Egyptian family want to kill him for committing murder. So Moses runs away. Moses escapes to Midian. And the book of Acts tells us that Moses stayed in Midian for 40 years years. And while there, he grew older and wiser. He married and they had a son. And he summarily describes his time in Midian as being a sojourner in a foreign land, a sojourner, an exile, one who didn't really belong. When you think about it, to put it mildly, Moses has basically had one long identity crisis his entire life. But before he was ever a sojourner in Midian, he was actually a sojourner in Egypt, his homeland. Go back with me to the murder scene. So Moses was raised an Egyptian, but he didn't cling to his Egyptian identity. Actually, when he saw his Hebrew brother being beaten by the Egyptian two times in verse 11, the Hebrew was referred to as one of Moses' people. And so when given the choice, Moses identified with the Israelites over the Egyptians. Although he could have clung to his rights as one raised in the Egyptian royal court. But Moses instead saw himself as an exile, even in his own homeland. Hebrews 11, verses 24 through 26, clarify this for us even further. 
The text says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. Brothers and sisters, as you fast forward from this text thousands of years to today, if we are going to identify with the people of God from the, fat, the past, then we too have to identify ourselves as sojourners and exiles, even in the midst of our own homeland. Look, I mentioned this earlier, but I'm an American citizen. I'm even a proud American citizen. I speak the language. I love our freedoms. I identify with the culture, and I bleed with patriotism. Just like there are many of you who might come from a different place, and you have that sense of patriotism for your country. I even proudly call this place home. But in many ways, even though I do call this place home, I live as a sojourner or an exile, even in my own homeland. Because God has called me to live out my Christian identity. And as I live out my Christian identity in the midst of a culture that does not value his way of life, I should not be surprised that I don't always fit in with what's going on around me. And neither should you be surprised. We have to identify ourselves as exiles, even in the midst of our own homeland. Moses did, New Testament believers did, believers throughout church history have, we do too. Lastly, lastly, a fifth way in which we relate and identify with God's people from the past that we see here in the text is we have to hope in God's promises especially when our pain is great. Okay, let's finish the chapter. We pick up in verse 23, and we'll read these last couple of verses here, and then we'll make some comments on them. During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. The king of Egypt died, the text tells us. So that means that Moses, at now 80 years old, can return to Egypt, not as a fugitive, but as a prophet. The king may have died, but the slavery was still Severe. And the text tells us that the people are groaning. They're crying out for help. And the text says that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And I love what the text tells us. Look back at all of the active verbs here in verse 24 and 25. God heard. God remembered. God saw. God knew. 
You see, the Israelites may not have been intimately acquainted with their God yet, but their God was intimately acquainted with them. And he was keenly aware of their circumstances. You see, God had not been inactively dormant during their long plight. He was working behind the scenes. And he was working behind the scenes to raise up a deliverer and preparing that deliverer for the appointed time. And that time was just about near. So as we get ready to close this morning, I want to leave you with a couple of promises that you and I can cling to in light of what we've read in Exodus. Because we also, like our brothers and sisters from ages past, must learn to hope in God's promises. And not only when things are great, not only when the bank account is high and the children are being really obedient and our romantic partners are pursuing us even further, but especially when we hope in God's promises, especially when our pain is great. Here are two promises we can cling to based on this, these passages. Number one, God will not forget us. God will not forget us. The key word in these final verses of chapter 2 is that word, remembered. God remembered his covenant with Abraham. Now, this doesn't mean that somehow God had forgotten them. It doesn't mean that he had forgotten the covenant that he made to Abraham. But then the intense groans of the people as they wailed more loudly and more loudly, that that somehow jogged God's memory. No, as Tim Chester defines it, remembering means that God is about to take the next step in the fulfillment of his promises. Brothers and sisters, God will not forget you. And I recognize that there are times when you feel alone and you feel forgotten You think that no one else cares, no one notices you, and to compound the pain even more, to compound the issue further, it seems as though God himself is one of the ones who has forgotten you or is who is against you, that you somehow think that he has turned his back on you and he's failed to do anything about your circumstances. But friend, what verse... 24 and verse 25 remind you and me of today is that even in the midst of our pain, even in the midst of the intensity of our circumstances, God sees you and he hears you. And I love this here. He knows you. And in response, he will remember his covenant. He will remember his promises. This morning, I want to remind you that if you are in Christ Jesus today, if you are a born-again follower of Jesus Christ, I want to remind you that God has already fought your ultimate battle for you. He's already freed you from your ultimate slavery and oppression 
the oppression and slavery of our sin. He's already fulfilled his greatest promise to you in sending the promised deliverer, his son, Jesus Christ. And he proved that he fulfilled it by raising his son from the dead. And so follow this reasoning. If God has already accomplished the greatest part of his promise for you, how much more will he remember you and fulfill his promises to you and to me and our momentary struggles and times of need today? God will not forget us, but here's what God will do. Our God will redeem us. He will redeem us. The people cried out for rescue and liberation. And that's what God ultimately brought the Israelites. He redeemed their slavery. We haven't seen it yet in the text, but we're going to see it in the coming chapters. But as Chester goes on to say, this story is not just the story of how God liberates one particular oppressed people. It's the story of how God fulfills his promise to bring salvation to all people. What's at stake here is not just the liberation of one nation. This story will set the pattern for the liberation of all nations from bondage to Satan. The Bible is the story of God leading us back home. Friend, this is what Jesus ultimately came to bring you and me. And it's redemption. You know, when something is redeemed, it, it, it's, it's almost like a trade. If you think about your circumstances, if you think about your plight, and you think about the worst of the experiences that we experience here on earth, the promise of redemption is that God will take the worst of the worst that we experience, and he will trade them. He will redeem them, turning them in to something very much for our good. It's what he did with our sin. One of the greatest acts of human sin was the murder of Jesus on the cross of Calvary. And Jesus turned, God turned that cruel evil-inspired act on the cross and turned it into our soul's greatest good. And this is the same thing that God will do in each and every one of our circumstances. I want you to hear this promise this morning. There is not a single thing that you experience here on planet Earth that God will not, through His Son, Jesus Christ, redeem for your good and for his glory. That's why we cling to the promise of Romans 8, verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I wonder this morning if you know that promise. I wonder this morning, can you claim that promise in Jesus Christ? 
And the reality is, if you were born again and you've repented of your sins and you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, I want you to know that these promises belong to you in the name of Jesus Christ. But friend, if you haven't turned to God today, if you're not a believer, if you've not surrendered your life to him, I want you to know that these promises don't belong to you. They're not yours. But might I say it like this? They're not yours yet, but they could be. These promises could be yours. And so if you're looking at your life and you're looking at the mire of sin and what sin has done to you and how you are enslaved to your sin, and if you're looking at your circumstances and the plight that you experience here on earth and you are so crying out, just like the Israelites in the Old Testament, and your groans are there coming up before God, what I want you to know is he's provided a means by which you can cry out to him and he wants you to turn not to Moses, but to turn to his ultimate deliverer. Jesus Christ. And if you will relinquish your life, if you will let loose of your life, if you will turn from your sins and you will place your faith in him, every promise that we've looked at today, they will belong to you. And so why waste these opportunities anymore? Turn to Jesus. Turn to God and unite yourself, unite your story with the next chapter that's got, that God is writing for his people for redemptive history. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for speaking to us. Thank you for speaking to us through your word. Thank you for the miraculous supernatural way you have preserved your word for generations, for centuries, for millennia, that we can read it today. Father, I simply pray this prayer over our people this morning. May we link our story with your greater story that you've been writing throughout the ages. May we ultimately find our identity with you. Father, deliver us so that we may know you and make you known. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.